I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Have you seen the new Loblaws ad? It's entitled, I Like It Like That. And it's all about food. It begins with a young girl disdainfully removing a slice of tomato from her plate and dropping it in the garbage. In the next scene, we watch another young girl watch in horror as her grandfather eats a tomato just like an apple. And a young woman is served a steak with arugula leaves on it and almost retchingly removes the leaves to the horror of her host. And a husband is aghast watching his wife smother her meatloaf with ketchup. And a young man is turned off by a beautiful platter of fish because the head of the fish is still attached and he's sort of poking at it. A father watches in shock as his son mushes all of his food together on the plate. While in his own plate, each food group looks like it's behind its own fence. And meanwhile, the song, I like it like that, is playing in the background. And the narrator says, love it or hate it, if food matters to you, you're a food lover. We all have our preferences, not just in food, but in every area of our lives. My father was a GM man and could never understand Ford or Dodge people. Couldn't they see that GM was obviously better? My wife, who gave me permission to tell this story, before I met her, dated a Baptist boy. And her mother literally got sick because he wasn't Mennonite. Boy, was she glad to see me. <laughs> Preferences are one thing. We all have them but how easily they become markers, symbols of our rightness, of who is in, who is trustworthy, and who is out and not to be trusted. And then we entrench these scruples as markers of personality and even spirituality. And then as our scrupulosity, that's a good word, people who have scruples are filled with scrupulosity. As our scrupulosity increases, we become rigid, legalistic and dogmatic about these preferences. And for the Jewish people of Jesus' time, these preferences had developed into ideologies based on purity and food laws that determined who belonged and who did not, who was unclean and who was clean. And looking back now from our perspective, so many of these rules seem ridiculous. Circumcision versus non-circumcision, as if circumcision somehow made you more pure or uncircumcision made you dirty. Food laws, not just preference, but total marginalization. If you ate the wrong foods or ate with the wrong people or ate in the wrong ways. Today we might politely call this manners and even there we easily judge a person on that basis. I've had couples come to counseling because one of them was a noisy eater and the other can't stand it and it became almost a deal breaker. And I can understand the annoyance, but it is into these, these annoyances and divergent defining preferences that each of our scriptures today speaks. 
Not only are our preferences exposed, but also the extent to which we can use them to marginalize others is brought into question. And in this story of the clean and unclean animals, as a kid I acted out this story with my friends in our barn. We got a big sheet, put all kinds of critters, snakes, chickens, uh, bugs, all kinds of things. The only mistake we made was putting the cat in there. <laughs> Acting out this story because it was one of my favorite stories. The story of the clean and unclean animals in the encounter with Cornelius's servants is told twice in Acts, in chapter 10, and then again in our text in chapter 11. And so it must have carried a significant shift or transformation in the early church for the Lucan author to devote, to devote so much time to it. We must remember that making a scroll was an onerous process. Scrolls were made from the pith of papyrus plants and rolled up. And the full scroll of Luke would likely have been about 35 feet long. You don't just unravel this thing and read it. And so the author would have been very careful about what he included in the text. And so the fact that this story is told twice suggests that this was a very critical juncture, a defining moment in the emerging Christian experience. Why tell it twice and waste all that scroll space? Perhaps because the story would forever change the parameters of the early Christian faith, inviting what would have seemed unthinkable, an unthinkable paradigm shift to Peter and the Jewish Christians. And I'm suggesting that it is also a reminder to us to be open to paradigm shifts today, to change. Often these paradigm shifts feel like a conversion experience. You were thinking one way, and all of a sudden some experience or teaching has, has you toying with thinking a different way, sometimes even a seemingly opposite way. Was I wrong before? Am I right now? Or might there be a bigger question? And perhaps one of the questions we need to ask is, if I shift to this new paradigm, this new way of thinking, does it make God bigger or does it make God smaller? And it would seem to me that if it makes God seem smaller, it is likely moving towards some distinctive, some scruple, some movement towards who's right and who's wrong. And if it seems to be making God bigger, more inclusive, it might be a life-giving invitation, an invitation to incorporate all that is life-giving from your former way of thinking and bring it into this new paradigm. I remember when I began seminary and my first Old Testament professor stood on the desk, held this huge Bible over the floor and dropped it on the floor and said, is this how we got this? It just dropped out of the heavens? I had never thought of that. I just assumed that God sat down with Moses and dictated it. And I began this paradigm shift. And it was cataclysmic for me. What did it now mean for the scriptures to be inspired? And my spiritual director at the time gave me this image of two barges on a river, right beside each other, one flowing in one direction and one in the other. He said, remember, they're both carried by the same river. 
and I was on the one barge and suddenly called to move on the other barge in a seemingly opposite direction. And he suggested to me that while they were beside each other, I had a period of time to bring that which had been life-giving on the old barge onto the new barge as it began to flow in a different direction. Perhaps that's a tension and resistance to any paradigm shift. It forces us to realign our lives, our values, and the way we look at our scriptures and traditions. A careful reading of Acts does not support the view of scriptures as the only source of divine revelation. Instead in Acts, and especially in this passage, God's message to us takes the form of a surprising experience rather than the command of a biblical text. In Acts, scripture is often reread by experience. And in this story, when support for a new direction of God is asked for, the Jesus-connected prophet typically shares a saving and stretching event before he shares a sacred text. It doesn't discard the text. It looks at it with new eyes, with a new hermeneutic. And when we were able to do that, the scriptures indeed become a living, breathing word. Our opinion is adjusted, are changed, or even reversed by our existential encounters with the Holy Spirit, right there in the mess and muck of our lives. We must be careful when we leave little room for religious experience in the faith community. And look how this shift happens for Peter and begins to happen for his hearers. Peter, perhaps against his natural argumentative tendencies, doesn't rely on ideology or argumentation, text or rhetoric to convince them. He simply tells them what happened, his story. And in our other passage, look what the Spirit tells him as he goes with these men. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. The Spirit's work is always about inclusivity, and inclusivity always invites us to look at our distinctions. I don't know about you, but seldom does transformation come to me because someone convinced me of it. More often it comes out of my narrative lived experience, how someone's story or my story affects my life. And now instead of looking only through a lens of text and tradition, through who's right and who's wrong, we keep the traditions open through that which is life-giving, a lens of loving connection. And this is the shift that is reflected in our gospel text, the new commandment, the new hermeneutic, which is actually the old hermeneutic and its need for enlargement, its need for renewal of the spirit. It's almost as if Jesus saying, okay, if you need a new commandment, if you need a new way of looking at life, at tradition, at texts, use a hermeneutic of love. If something doesn't fit this hermeneutic, hold it tentatively or even discard it. And I want to suggest this is also the apocalyptic vision of our Revelations text. Here we see the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. This isn't just about geography. 
This is an encouragement to look at our current situation and life with a rediscovery of a lost way of looking at things, of a lost hermeneutic, one that brings life rather than one preoccupied with who is right and who is wrong. And the one who is seated on the throne says, follow the rules? No. See, I am making all things new. Can you see the life-giving invitation right there where we are tempted with our tempted to become scrupulous in that place where we tend to defend ourselves or some idea at the expense of a relationship and sometimes in resistance to our experience or even the facts. And so how do we handle differences of preference and opinion and why? I want to suggest that perhaps we handle them with an academic and emotional and a spiritual humility. Years ago, I listened to a debate by N.T. Wright and Marcus Borg. Some of you know this story. They came to my seminary. Marcus Borg, a liberal theologian, part of the Jesus... Uh, the Jesus Seminar, uh, and uh, N.T. Wright as well. N.T. Wright, a conservative evangelical scholar, very thoughtful man. N.T. Wright, a very liberal scholar. The two of them wrote a book together on Jesus each chapter bouncing back and forth in terms of their differing opinions. And they showed up at my seminary to hold a debate. They arrived in the same car. They had had dinner together. They were sharing a hotel room, which was very interesting to some of us. One of my more conservative fellow students, after their debate, where they really hashed it out, looked at Marcus Borg and stood up and disdainfully pointed at him and said, how do you know you're right? And Marcus Borg looked at N.T. Wright with this sort of grin and said, right. And his exact words were, who the hell knows if we're right? This is our best guess. And we left with this sense of here were these two men at opposite theological poles on a different barge seemingly going in different directions who loved one another and respected each other's relationship with Jesus. This reflects the due diligence of our curiosity and the desire to understand, but combines it with the humility of listening to different possibilities, to different guesses. And look again at our gospel passage, written perhaps 10 to 15 years after Acts. We're given a new commandment. Have your preferences, have your opinions, but if you need a new commandment that transcends it all, this commandment is simple. We've heard it over and over again. Just love one another. Don't let your opinions and preferences become the determining factors of belonging. Belonging is a given. Our opinions and preferences are our current best guesses. And as we listen to others' stories and tell our own, as we search the texts, we will begin to let these best guesses hear one another in love. And then, like our psalm suggests, all that will be left for us is to offer praise for God's universal glory, glory, that manifestation of all that is God in the created order. Praise is the acknowledgement of that. God says, I love you with an everlasting love. 
We have a few short years to say back, I love you too. How? Jesus suggests by loving one another. Amen.